Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I'll just come up sometimes. See me. in your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, sir. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Hey everybody, Kirk here. I uh, just want to say before we start the episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter. And Facebook. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear your feedback, and you can find us on any social media by searching Silver Screen Time Machine. We appreciate your feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello, and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's classic film review. Hello, Kirk. Hi, Wendy. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm really excited, actually, about what we're going to be talking about today. So we are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to... 1931. And we are going to discuss The Public Enemy. Public Enemy. The Public Enemy, yes. I always forget to say the the. I didn't realize it was the until I I watched it and looked it up on IMDb. I always said Public Enemy. Just Public Enemy. But this is exciting because I think this is our first pre-code film. I believe so, yes. Pre-code sort of is a term that's used a lot for films that were made in a very specific period of time, like 1930 to about 1934, when they instituted... Well, the production code was instituted. It just was not very enforced. But in 1934, I believe it was, they began to very seriously enforce it. Yes. And after that, film changed a lot. But Mm -hmm. this is beforehand, and the public enemy... We might as well start at the beginning. What do you think of that little disclaimer by Daryl Zanuck? I mean, how hypocritical can you be? I mean, yeah. it's just so ridiculous. Clearly put just to get yeah. the film by. I think there are bumpers on the front and back of the yep. movie. I think it's very disingenuous. Yes. Because I, I feel like the yep. movie tries to set itself up as if it's some kind of public service announcement. Yes. Where obviously it's just made for like titillation, but there's a point to all this. There's a reason yes. why we're doing this. There's social consciousness behind this movie. Yes. They just wanted to put over a crime film. Correct. And I will quote, if you don't mind, sure. it is the ambition of the authors of The Public Enemy to honestly depict the environment that exists today in a certain strata of American life rather than glorify the hoodlum or the criminal. While the story of The Public Enemy is essentially a true story, all names and characters appearing herein are purely fictional. And it's crazy to me that this is pre-code. And there's a lot in this movie that doesn't seem pre-code to me. It seems very coded. Yes. But that feels like something tacked on because of the code. Bribe can't pay. We need to make sure these are the bad guys. That's the kind of thing exactly what the Hayes Code was enforcing. So the fact that they they tacked it on themselves before the code was under enforcement It's kind of crazy to me. Well, again, that's why I mentioned there was a code. There was a code in 1930. It just was not as well enforced. They had one poor fellow, I think his name was Joy, and he had to try to look over 500 scripts a year. (laughs) So obviously he wasn't going to have a lot of success doing that. So like I said, they did have the code in effect. But I think you're right. Jason Joy was the fellow's name. You could get past the code. But something that would be very obviously a gangster film, probably he might want scrutinized. So I think they did feel the need to add this disclaimer. It's funny, too, that they 
act like, oh, the environment has created this person. Yeah. But when we get into the film and we see the environment, you don't get that sense at all from the film. No. The environment hasn't created this. No. The movie opens with the two main characters as children. Right. And there's a very silent movie vibe to this whole thing. It feels very inspired by silent movies. And there's a little scene at the beginning with the two young kids getting to some hijinks. And it felt like some out of a Chaplin movie. Mm-hmm. They're sliding down the steps or running from the police and they're knocking people's hats off and things like that. So yeah, the beginning feels almost quaint. You don't get the idea that there's anything in these kids' lives other than the fact they're just poor kids. Are they even poor? We don't know about Matt. That's the one child. We don't know because we don't really see his family, but we certainly see Tom's family. He has a father and a mother. The father is a policeman. They look to live in a sort of middle-class neighborhood. Sure. Yeah, that's true. So I don't even think they're poor kids. This film is not far removed from the silent era. We're in 1931. The thing that I thought was also interesting that happens even before you see the kids is the dates. The first date they start out with, I believe, is 1909. And they're showing actual stock footage of what it was like back in 1909. And they're trying to give you the impression of how the saloons were operating and how there was all this alcohol and this was a big problem. And they're kind of hinting why sequences happened as they did. Here's the problem. The saloons had all this alcohol and this and that. But you see these two kids. And what I think is interesting about the two kids is that this is probably advancing too early into this, but James Cagney at first was supposed to play the character of Matt Doyle, right? And Edward Woods is supposed to play the character of Tom Power. So right at the very beginning of production, they chose to switch them. We'll get into that later, why they did that. But what they failed to do is switch the kids. So the kid that looks like Cagney is still playing Matt. And the kid that looks sort of like Edward Woods is playing Tom. So it's very confusing. Yeah, that was tough. It's always hard for me when I'm watching, especially an older movie, when you start with those scenes with the kids because you know, okay, who's who? What's the name? What's that? That's always hard enough for me to begin with. And then to have them do that. Yeah, where they cast specific kids for specific characters. And they just switched the characters without switching the actors. Yeah, I wonder why they didn't switch the kids unless they had already perhaps... I I think it was, was, I don't know if it was a budget thing or a time thing, but they just didn't go back and reshoot. You notice throughout the film, and even you see it in the very beginning credits that everybody has these sort of little mannerisms. You see Matt is always wiping his nose. And we sort of see why that happens because in the beginning of the film, they're trying to go somewhere and the door gets slammed in his face right in his nose. And I feel like that's the precursor as to why he's always wiping his nose. It's something he does throughout the movie. And James Cagney does this short arm jab or whatever throughout the movie. Yeah. So, yeah, these little mannerisms these characters have. And like I said, when they introduce them all in the credits, everybody does their little mannerism. And it's really, really cool. I thought that was funny, too, for a movie that's supposed to be gritty time drama. You get an opening where they're introducing the characters, they're showing the characters, and they're all doing a little kind of aw shut. Yeah. It feels like something a little rascal or something like that really had me confused as to what the tone of this movie is going to be. Yeah. We should note this film is set in Chicago. Yes. We're cutting into different time frames. So we start out in 1909. You see right off the bat, it's really very obvious, at least to me, that Tom, he has an older brother whose name is Mike. Mm -hmm. And you can see right away that Tom is a bit of a troublemaker. His brother, Mike, seems to be much more responsible. And you see, again, he has this father that's a policeman who's this obviously big authority figure. You only see him in the very early beginning scenes. But there's a scene where Tom's doing something. He's annoying the neighborhood girl, which is actually Matt's sister. He's annoying Matt's sister. Mm -hmm. And the father is standing there watching them. And the way they have the camera on the father, he just looks like this big, huge, imposing 
figure. And Tom walks up to him and he takes him into the house and you see the mother and she's this very sweet lady and you see him get out the belt and yeah. he gives him a whooping, right? Yeah, and Tom's just like, okay, let's get it over with. Yeah, and he's still very defiant yeah. towards his father. So you see right away, right from the very beginning, he has no respect for authority. Right. Unlike his brother, who where they are raised in the same environment, yet Tom has no respect for authority and his brother does. Sure. So right away, that kills the whole yeah. environment right. thing to right. me. Yeah, you're right. So then we also find out that the boys, again, we're talking about Matt and Tom. They're going to this local saloon or whatever, or, or club. It's a yeah. local club. And they're dealing with this fellow named Putty Nose. What is his name? Putty Nose? Yeah. He's played by Murray Kennel. And this guy is ripping them off. Yeah. They're going around stealing watches, I guess. Yeah, it's almost like an Oliver Twist situation. Yeah. The little street urchins are out gathering what they can. They brought like a display case of Watch- watches from yeah. the store. And they're trying to sell them for whatever they can get. Yeah, and he's clearly ripping them off. But again, I feel like Tom looks up to this person more than he looks up to his father. Sure, like absolutely. these are the kind of people that Tom looks up to. Yeah. So, but-, but you're right. That connection of why is missing. Why is he? gravitating towards these people you really don't get. I feel like this whole movie is kind of told and fast forward. I think there's a lot of blanks that we're left to fill in on our own as far as character growth and development and motivation and things like that. And there's a lot of things too about this film that you really have to read between the lines for certain things. And I'll get into that a little bit further. Again, we're going to go to 1917. And that's the start of World War One. Now, the father has vanished. We assume he must have died, but he just, there's no explanation. Yeah, he's no just, just gone. It's just the mother. And now they're young adults. And Matt's sister is now married to Tom's brother, Mike. Yes. And the scene starts off with the news saying war is declared. It's yeah. 1917, that is the start of when America joined World War One. Yeah. And they're obviously trying to get these very historic dates down. Yes. The first thing we see is now they're driving a truck, right? Yeah. You have the same attitudes with them. Clearly, Tom is the leader. Matt's kind of like just the sidekick. Yeah. And Mike is the very responsible person before Mike goes to the war. Do they not get hooked up with this Patty Ryan fellow first? It's about the same time, yeah. Okay, I can't remember exactly with the sequence, but did you recognize Patty Ryan? I did. Where I didn't, I forgot to look him up. Where is he from? Oh, well, it's from something we've already talked about, Night of the Opera, the cop that they chased around. Okay, yeah, okay. Chased around the hotel room with the beds. Okay, yeah. Yep, same guy. His name is Robert O'Connor. Okay. And this fellow, he did make a career playing cops. He gets a little bit of a different role here where he plays a gangster. First, Putty Nose sends them on this heist. Oh, yeah. At the fur factory. Mm. They are all excited they're on this big heist. He gives them guns. Yeah. And they go on this heist. I guess they're supposed to rob the furs. That's what I yeah, I can see from that. And they have a guy on the lookout. It's very dark. And Tom and Matt are separating these furs. And for some reason, there's like this big, gigantic bear. Yeah, like a Texas like, army bear. Yeah, a big, yeah. Yeah, a stuffed bear. And then Tom starts shooting at yeah. it, <laughs> which, of course, then shots are being fired. The cops come immediately. Apparently, they're like literally one block away yeah. because they come immediately. And the lookout guy gets shot yeah. and killed in the back as he's fleeing, yeah. by the way, which in this day and age, <laughs> that wouldn't go over. But back then. I guess that was okay. So they're fleeing, Tom and Matt. And again, you'll notice in this particular film, you never see the villains or the bad guys kill anybody directly. It's all implied. Implied, yeah. yeah. So you see them run down this alley, and then you see these shots fired. You just see the, the lights from the, the gun. Yeah. And then the next thing you see is a hand with a gun in it and the cop's hat right there. Yeah. And you see the boys throwing their guns over the wall. Yeah. So you then know that they've shot the cop. 
This is, I think, the tonal problem this movie has. You have that scene with the bear yeah. that is very comical. He literally does get taken, and freaks out, and so just starts shooting everywhere. And then out of nowhere, you just smash cut to this cop coming up on the lookout, shooting him in the back. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, no questions asked. Susie sees the guy. He pulls yeah. the guy that he's shooting, and the guy drops. And then, yeah, it takes a very serious turn. Now they've they've shot the cop. Shot the cop, yeah. yeah. They're not found out for that. Sure. But, you know, there's a scene with them going to the lookout guy's funeral. I think it's very significant. And then we get to the point where the brother is going to war. Yes. He's enlisted to go join the war. And this dynamic between the brother and Tom, Mike and Tom, I feel very much like the brother has taken over the father's authority. Yeah. And don't you get the impression that Tom is always treated like a child even when he's not a child he's always being treated like he's a young boy yeah maybe that's where all his anger is coming from yeah. that he feels like he's not being taken seriously at any point it could be they don't explain it but you assume the father died when they were yeah. young and he took that spot up and he takes it very seriously and it, he's very much like the authority figure like black and white this is how it is this is what you do and obviously that's oil and water the two of them yeah but you get the impression that maybe he does want the respect of the brother even though he doesn't want to listen to him yeah but he does want the brother's respect yeah and the mother is very nurturing and loving, but also spoiling, again, always calling him a baby. Yeah. Always, throughout the whole film, treating him like a baby. And that's going to be a common theme with all the women in this film, treat him like a baby. So it's a very common theme that goes through the film. So they start out with this new fellow. Patty. Patty. Patty Rye. Yeah. But we should say that after the fur heist, uh, Putty Nose kind of disappears. He goes to the lake. Right. That's right. Because they come to him for a sanctuary mm -hmm. and he refuses to see them and they feel like they've been betrayed by him. Yeah. And Tom is especially angry and he's like, I'm going to get you this and that. And that's an important point to mention because that does come back later. And then they wind up meeting up with this Patty Ryan and he's like, help me out, boys. Do some work for me. And they're like, sure. OK. And then they wind up getting this really good gig. And it, this is, again, we're going to have another title card. Like you said, like silent film. It's almost like a title card card it's just the date yeah and now it says 1920 so now we're at the start of prohibition mm -hmm. so we're at our next historical marker and obviously you see these scenes of people like trying to gather yeah, all this alcohol. alcohol is a great scene yeah yeah the last before prohibition is going to affect and you see there's a scene where a couple and the woman's holding She's a baby. Like a baby the guy's pushing a baby carriage full of, of liquor bottles yeah yeah it's great it's it is a great scene and imagine it probably was something like that to be oh, honest yeah. yeah it would have been interesting to have seen actual footage of that maybe it was stock footage i don't know so this Patty Ryan now has this new gig that he has with this beer distributor guy mm -hmm. where they are going to distribute the beer to all the local pubs and they're going to strong arm all the pubs and force them to use their beer. Yes. Then a new character is introduced. This fellow, Nails Nathan, yes. plays by Leslie Fenton, which to me, I don't know how you feel about it, but I loved this actor. Yeah. I thought he was the second best character in the film next to James Cagney. Yeah. He was my favorite character. Was he? Yeah. yeah. He just so cool and smooth. Yeah. The thing I liked about him, he played very much against the type. Everybody else in this movie is very much the Look here, see kind of guy, yeah. you know, like that stereotypical type of gangster character. He's very flamboyant, easygoing, kind of a more modern character you'd see in a crime movie now where he's the crime boss, but you don't know it just by looking at it. He's not out there trying to prove how tough he is. Yeah, he's not tough guy type. Yeah, he's more know. like a very smooth, well-dressed yeah. guy. And this actor, Leslie Fenton, was a British actor, yeah. but... You couldn't tell it. He acquires that sort of Chicago sound, yeah. the way he talks. We should probably mention at this point that these characters are based on real people. 
So Nails Nathan is based on a fellow called Nails Morton. Okay. It's Morton. Almost all the characters are based on a gang, a Chicago mafia gang led by Charles Dion O'Banion. And that is who Tom Powers is supposedly based on is this Charles Dion O'Banion. Sure. And Nails Morton was one of his members. And there were some other members. There's a member called the Schemer Drusy, And then the rival gang is called Schemer Burns. Yeah. So you have a lot of these based on real people. Sure. And this film was written based on an unpublished novel and it was called Beer and Blood written by John Bright and Kubik Glassman. There were two newspaper men who actually started out working together in a pharmacy or a drugstore. Kubik Glassman owned this drugstore and apparently Al Capone used to come into this drugstore. Okay. And John Bright would work there and in fact they would witness all these atrocities in real life, these gang type atrocities. And John Bright witnessed, supposedly witnessed Al Capone have two men beaten to death at a hotel right in front of him. Oh wow. They had a lot of experience to back up what they were writing about here. So this is a very true to life. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of fiction put in there. Yeah. But they wrote this based on what they were seeing in the gang wars in the 1920s in Chicago. Yeah. And this was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Story. Yeah. Sadly, it didn't win. That's just a little point I wanted to mention there. So once they start working with Nails, Nathan, all of a sudden you see them. They're dressed in very nice suits. Yeah. And they're going to these fancy clubs. Oh, and again, are we trying to not glamorize? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, this seems a little glamorized. Yeah. And at this point, they go to a club and they wind up meeting these women, yeah. right? The proprietor of the club is a black man who happens to be, the actor happens to be Hattie McDaniel's brother. Okay. It was really interesting that they had a black man as the proprietor of a club yeah. for 1920. That seems like might not generally be, have been the case in that era, but I thought that was kind of cool that they didn't have them in some weird stereotypical role yeah, they tend to do and also that was cool that it was Hattie McDaniel's brother yeah but they go into this club and they meet these girls and one of them is played by Joan Blondell mm-hmm. her name in the film is Mamie and she winds up being the love interest of Matt Edward Woods and the other one is Kitty and she's played by Mae Clark and they right away take up with these girls and they wind up basically shacking up with them. I yeah. mean, they're kind of like all living together in the hotel, which I want to mention this film was re-released in 1941, I believe. And when they re-released this film in 1941, they cut out several scenes because at that point, the production code was in effect. Yeah. One of the scenes they cut out was the guys and the girls in their pajamas in the hotel. Oh, wow. Okay. Because of saying, oh, clearly they're shocking up. Yeah. And another thing, I thought this scene was really funny. The Taylor scene. Yeah. The, the, when yeah, the, that really when, stood out to me. That oh, was definitely pretty. Yeah. Funny. When when, ja- yeah. when, ja- when James Cagney is getting fitted for his suit and yeah. this Taylor is clearly gay. Yeah. And he... He's grabbing him. Yeah. Oh, what muscles and yeah. stuff like this, and and it's it's a really funny little scene. But yeah. they took that out for the 1940. Yeah, that really surprised me to have a character that flamboyantly mm-hmm. gay like that. And Kennedy's reaction is kind of annoyed with him, but they have a conversation. He's a real character in the movie. He's yeah. he's not a joke, which to me was really surprising. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, what's the punchline here? And there really wasn't one. Yeah, but then Cagney at the end, the way he... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I I love that so much. He just did that so well. Like, that's the thing about James Cagney that I think made James Cagney so great and what made people want James Cagney to be the star, why maybe one of the reasons why he got swapped in these roles is that these little small facial gestures and little small things that he would do just brought so much life and personality to his character. Yeah. And obviously, Edward Woods is playing the sidekick, but he really seems so... 
nondescript next yeah. to James Cagney. And you can see why they'd want to switch them in the role. Yeah, it's tough because like I said, the, these are very, at least again, through a modern lens, feel like very much stock characters. Mm-hmm. But Cagney brings an energy to that that kind of sets him apart. Yeah, and they also said that they thought that perhaps Edward Woods was a little too clean cut, a little too handsome. They had done a gangster film with Lou Ayers a little bit earlier, and it fell flat because he looked so handsome and polished and that he didn't come off well as a gangster. People didn't believe it. And they were afraid that was going to happen again here. And they thought that Cagney had a sort of Brooklyn accent, a little bit more rougher around the edges. Edward Woods, the actor who plays Matt, does kind of fade to the background physically. There's nothing really about him. He's he's kind of a blank. It makes sense that they would switch. It's surprising to me that they would cast the other way around in the first place. You look at them and Cagney is such a natural lead for this. My guess is that at that point in time, maybe Edward Woods had more films under his belt. This is a very early film for Cagney. Yeah, definitely. So he probably was a little bit more of the established actor at the time. So that's probably why they cast him that way. But another thing you might notice about Cagney is the way he moves. Cagney was a song and dance man to start. And it's very obvious he's very graceful in his movements. And again, it makes Matt look a little bit kind of wooden. Yeah, I think especially the brother, the the, the actor who plays Mike, is... So what? Donald Cook. The two of them together, it's just ridiculous because he does, he has that very choppy delivery, like, this is the way it is, and you listen to me. And his movements are like that and everything. He's, he's so stiff that next to Cagney, it's kind of silly to look at, the, the, the two of them, because you see Cagney is almost like that next evolution in what an actor is. Mm-hmm. These other guys are very much of their time. Yeah, they're almost like stock yeah. actors. And you can see here what Cagney's going to become. And it's funny because you say, you know, he won his Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dan. Yeah. And that, in the long run, seems to be the outlier. Oh, he's the gangster guy that won for the music. <laughs> but he originally was, the, like you said, the song and dance. I don't think James Cagney gets the credit that some other people get. When you talk about the greatest actors ever, I don't think he's mentioned all that much. And he did every possible kind of film. He did a musical. He did film noir. He did westerns. He did everything. He did gangster films. He did Shakespeare. Sure. I mean, he did everything. And he was good and everything, even if you see him in the worst crappiest film. He is still very dynamic and very good no matter what. I think what hurts his legacy the most is that he's kind of become a meme. Everybody does the Cagney impression. Mm. You see the character of his face everywhere. I think that's why people don't really think of him as a great actor Yeah, because he is. He's the character in He's very identified with the gangster films, even though he did many films, many films that were not gangster films. He's very, very identified with the gangster films. But back to the plot, they hook up with these girls. And then again, you're going to see this weird relationship that James Cagney has with women. This girl that he's dating, it seems like when he becomes intimately involved with the woman, he then becomes very violent with her. This streak of violence comes out in him. And and the most famous scene in the whole film... When he shoves that grapefruit into the side of her face, that's just uh, something I noticed throughout the film is that the women that he had some sort of an intimacy with, he became very violent with. So again, they're all still treating him like a baby. Yeah. Oh, my baby and this and that. And I think he wants to be treated like a man. And I maybe that's why he gets so angry with them. And I think that's another problem I have with the movie is the relationships. A lot of those relationships feel underdeveloped. Literally, the Kitty character, yeah. the first scene you see her in is when they meet. Yeah, and then- The second scene you see her in is that scene there where they're, where they're breaking up. 
Yeah. So there's this established relationship here that we're supposed to think or feel something about this, but we haven't been given the information. Yeah. Why do I care that this relationship's going to do that? But Matt has a very successful relationship with Joan Blondell. Mamie, they are they have yeah. a very stable and normal relationship, which again just shows the difference between the two guys, Tom and Matt. And then Tom winds up meeting another person, Gwen, who is played by Gene Harlow, who is the queen of the pre-codes. Can we even have a pre-code film without Gene Harlow? I don't think so. Again, a very early film for Gina Harlow, but she plays a different kind of character. Right away, they notice her because they think she's very attractive and very sexy. She wears, and it's black and white, but you get the impression she's wearing a lot of white clothing. Yeah. But we wind up finding out that she is not really shacking up with Cagney. She's not really intimate with him. She seems to be holding out on him. There's a whole scene where they're talking about she's almost more like, to him, like a virginal person, even though we get the impression she's not. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like that image to him that she's like this Madonna to him and he can't succeed with her and so he you don't ever see the violence against her yeah and I think that that is because there's no intimacy between them Mm. because when they finally get to a point where they're going to try to get together. Well, before that happens, actually, they're all at a nightclub celebrating. Matt gets married, right? And he marries Mamie, Joe Blondell, and they're all celebrating his marriage. And who do they see at the nightclub? They see old Putty Nose. Yeah. James Cagney sees Putty Nose, and right away he remembers, oh, I still have something against this guy. And they leave the club, they follow him, and they follow him to his house, mm-hmm. and they're threatening him. And it's really, I found that to be such a hard scene to watch. Yeah, uh, He's pleading for his life. You feel really sorry for him. You kind of just want Tom to leave him alone and just say, okay, you know, well, you learned your lesson. And it's just... And then you also get the impression that Matt doesn't really want to do it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. How do you know he's pleading his case to Matt? And yeah. It seems to be buying him. Yeah. And again, this is where the tone comes in. I didn't expect that scene to go the way it did. Yeah. I thought, yeah, they're probably going to let him go. And camera pans over, and that's not how it plays out. And again, you don't see. Yeah. You don't see it, but you know that Tom has shot him. As he's sitting at the piano playing a song, he used to play it to them as children. Yeah. I just think I feel so sad in that scene. Yeah, it is. And it, it's it, really sad. It's it's very much to me a matter of I just wish the entire film carried that weight. I feel like the fact that the movie bounces back and forth so much diminished that for me. But yeah, there's definitely that's probably the most kind of heart wrenching scene of the movie. Yeah. And then just his reaction after he shoots him. Like not like, doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, just walk, let's go do that. But next thing. you can see that Matt is very affected. Yeah. And so you start to see that Matt, he's now got this stable life. He's got a wife. He's not interested so much in doing this sort of criminal activity. Maybe he's got a little bit more of a conscience. Yeah. So you can see they're going in different paths. And then we would we go to the scene where he's with Gwen and maybe they're about to get intimate and they're interrupted by Matt, who tells them that Nails Nathan has been killed. Yes. Not shot by the gangs, but actually killed by a horse. He <laughs> fell off a horse, which in real life, Nails Morton died that way. Okay. That really happened. He was thrown from his horse and trampling while he was riding in Lincoln Park. That makes sense because I wondered why that is in the movie, why they pick that specific yeah, for him to die. Because that is how Nails Morton okay. actually died. And the scene where they go in and ask for the horse, yeah. that is based on real life as well. The other members of the gang took the offending horse from its stables, led it to the spot where Morton died, and shot the horse with four slugs to the head. And I apologize. I know that will trigger a lot of people. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. He goes to the stable. How much is that horse? Where's the horse that killed Nels? Finds him, pays the guy. And then again, you don't see it, but he goes in, you yeah. hear the gunshots, you hear the almost comedic thump as the horse falls. 
I'm sorry. I'm I'm a bad person. I was laughing at that. And they bring out the horse's blanket yeah. as if to say, yes. I mean, again, they don't even show them shooting the horse. I mean, it's very against the violence. And I wonder if that was the influence of Mario Puzo with the, the horse in Godfather. Oh, you mean that influenced him? Yeah. Another important point, I think, is that Mike comes back from the war. Yeah. And I think a part that you don't really pay as much attention to in The Public Enemy is the fact that it seems to me they're showing him as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And I don't think that's really commonly brought out as something there, but it, that's a very early reference to that in 1931. But he clearly does seem to be suffering from that. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting that the film would put that in. But then he's found out everything that Tom's up to. He's yeah. very upset, very angry. Tom brings in this this is another part that's kind of funny in the film. He brings in this humongous barrel of yeah. beer and he puts it right as a centerpiece in the middle yeah. of the table. And the mother is trying to look around to yeah. see the son. And, and he's just sitting there like very angry, staring at the beer the whole yeah. time. And, and he makes the statement something about this is not just beer, this is blood and beer, which again, it was a reference to blood and beer, which is the original name of the novel. So they get in another fight. And mm. Tom always loses in these fights. He's this Mr. Tough guy, but he doesn't fight against his brother. Yeah. He accepts the licks or whatever. And mm-hmm. he's not that tough. And again, the mother ba- babying him quite yeah. a lot. Oh, my little baby. Well, the mother's completely in denial. She's yeah. very much like, oh, he's still my little boy. And we talked about earlier the, when the lookout is shot in that first heist and they cut to the funeral scene. And there's a couple of guys. Actually, there's a police officer and a couple other guys there at the funeral. And they're like, he was a bad guy. He was a bad boy. And they pan over to the mother and she's crying. She he was such a good boy. Yeah. Such a good boy. So yeah. kind of parallels the relationship with Tom and his mother where she's she wants to believe, yeah, she she wants to be sheltered and not believe that anything. I suppose we should mention that the mother is played by Beryl Mercer, mm-hmm. actually wound up playing quite a lot of mother figures throughout her career. As a matter of fact, that was her big thing that she did. And luckily, towards the end of her career, she actually played Queen Victoria right. twice. And one, one time it was in The Little Princess with Shirley Temple. She played Queen Victoria in that film. So she got to get away from the mother role for a little bit, at least. But the film goes on after Nails, Nathan is killed. Their gang kind of breaks down. They have to hide out while Patty goes out and tries to maybe recruit new troops. We're not really sure exactly what he's doing, I guess. I think he's trying to get everybody out of town. Because yeah. Nils was kind of like the power figure. Right. And that was holding everything together. And he was holding off the rival gang. And now that Nels is gone, like you said, their gang's kind of falling apart. And they're vulnerable to these rivals. So I think his goal is to get everybody, find a way to get everybody out of town. And just keep them hidden. Yeah, and this is another significant point in the film, I feel like, because the girlfriend of Patty, Ryan, her name was Jane. Mm-hmm. And she was played by Mia Marvin, uncredited role. She gets Tom very drunk. Yeah. Takes advantage of him. You feel like against his will. Yeah. That's the impression you get. And again, calling him a baby, my little, my good boy, stuff like that, the same sort of thing. And then the next morning when he realizes what's happened, he punches her, right? And he runs out. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he runs out into the street. Matt starts running after him and he's like, come back. They're having this discussion. And meanwhile, there's people on the roof on the other side. They start shooting. Matt gets killed. It had been established during those scenes Patty left them there said nobody leave you know, yeah, they said it's not safe. Don't tell anybody yeah. you're here. Don't leave. But it's established during those scenes between the two of them in the parlor that the rival gang knows they're there and they're setting them up to be killed if anybody comes out. So you know that there's something coming if they leave and they run out in that fight. And did you read this thing about those being real bullets? 
I did hear something about that. And I thought, would they really put two of their actors in? in I don't know. Uh, I mean, that crazy. seems like, uh, I mean, I understand they played fast and loose with safety rules around there. Yeah. We're firing real bullets by machine guns at your actors. I mean, I guess it's a matter of where exactly they were shooting them. But I mean, you hear worse stories nowadays of people on sets and accidents with guns. Well, we've seen we've seen it recently. Yeah. Somebody was shot and, uh, and killed. Yeah, absolutely. But that was, again, accidental. They were deliberately shooting sure, yeah. with some bullets. But there's a long history of yeah. responsibility with firearms on movie sets. I don't think we can go too much further because that will definitely spoil the plot. But Yeah, from there, it starts to unravel for Tom. And I will say that he starts to see the error of his ways and it's a little too yeah. easy. After know. something that happens to him that we won't specify, yeah. he wants to maybe come back to his family and re- yeah. resume normal life. But Daryl Zanuck said that Williams have to be punished. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, the end card says, well, maybe I shouldn't read it, but Anyway, it says the gist of it. The the end of this movie and the end of Tom Powers is the end of every hoodlum. The public enemy is not a man, nor is it a character. It is a problem that sooner or later we, the public, must solve. Whatever. <laughs> Great. Back on your message there, all you want. Yeah, that's okay. Well, now we all feel yeah. you know justified. But the thing is, again, this movie to me doesn't show that the environment created this person or this character. I honestly feel like this movie just leaves a lot of blanks to be filled in. It's a crime epic in its infancy. It wants to be that epic story, but it, what's the length? It's less than an hour and a half long. It's what, like 80 minutes long or something yeah. like that? And it feels like it wants to be one of those two and a half hour long movies, but it just did not have the material to fill that time and to fill yeah, the and space it needed. We don't know how much was cut. I sure. Maybe yeah. there was more to this film. This film is directed by the great director, William Wellman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Later. In 1931 alone, he made five films. This was yeah. sort of like when they were just churning out film after film after film low budget but one of the things that makes this film a little bit different than films just a couple a year or so before was that they had some more techniques that they could utilize as far as what they could do with their cameras before they used to have a camera in a booth it couldn't really shoot on location but they figured out a way by the time they did this to put cameras in blimps that's why you can see that scene where they're climbing up that big building. Yeah. They were able to shoot stuff like that. And that was pretty pioneering for 1931 to be able to do those kind of shots. Well, Wellman, the director, was a real innovator. He directed Wings, which was the first Academy Award winner yep. for Best Picture. And he did a lot of things with the camera mounts on the on the planes and yep. you know, to get the aerial shots. But he also invented the boom mic that used to be back in the day when sound was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. The microphone was in a certain spot. And that's where you had to stand. stand, So he took a microphone and taped it to a broom and invented the boom mic. Yeah. And he also invented the shotgun mic too, where he would just sit underneath the dolly, underneath the camera and move back and forth to wherever the sound needed to be. So he did a lot of innovation with sound, but also just a very interesting character. He was born in Massachusetts, so very influential, high society kind of family. Always in trouble with authority. Played minor league hockey. He was a juvenile delinquent. Kind of like Tom Powers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Maybe that's why he liked this film. Sure. He was in World War One. He was a pilot in World War One, mm-hmm. And he had, like, I think a five confirmed kills, shot down a lot of planes against the Germans. Came back. Flew for the movies. That's where he started his start. He was friends with Errol Flynn, started a relationship with him. That's kind of what brought him in the movies. Started his career as an act- in Hollywood as an actor. Didn't like being an actor, thought it was an unmanly profession. And that's when he started directing. But yeah, he directed Wings. Uh, he directed A Star is Born. Well, he won the best writing for original story for A Star is Born yeah, that was for 1938. That was his only Oscar, and it wasn't even for best director. But he also directed Bo Geist Oxbow Incident. Yeah. Yeah, which you and I both like. Mm-hmm. So William Wellman, this is a quality 
director. They have a lot of innovative stuff that they did with the cinematography. Dev Jennings was the cinematography. He did a lot of silent films, a lot of silent films with Buster Keaton. And he was one of the founders of the American Society of Cinematographers. And he also specialized in special effects and visual effects as well. And again, he was able to do these blimp shots. So that was kind of innovative. Great explosion in this movie. There's one scene with a really good explosion. I don't know if it was the first time, but they used multiple camera angles to get the explosion. And I guess they ended up using that stock explosion shot in a lot of different movies. But to me, honestly, a lot of the action in this film kind of fell flat, but that explosion was was pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's really hard because, again, we're really early. We're just in barely in the sound era. I mean, we're struggling with a lot of stuff here. Even though there was a lot of innovative stuff with the cinematography, I mean, the film still looks like an early 30s film. Yeah. And that, that, there's nothing you can do about that. I had a beautiful Blu-ray restoration of it, and it still looked like that. There's nothing you can do. It's just the technology of the time. Definitely. I think that the greatness in this film is James Cagney. Yeah. I think people enjoy this story. I think people enjoy gangster films. Oh, absolutely. Little Caesar was made just a little bit before this, another very mm-hmm. popular film. I think this is the sort of thing the public really likes. This sort of started melding into a film noir in a way. So not perfect, but a really good film. Do you have any other thoughts on this film? No, I'm ready to rate it if you are. I'm ready well, to rate it. It's complicated for me. Yeah, it's hard. Because we don't talk about this a lot, you and I, because we focus more on the movies that we do on this show. But my favorite movies are crime movies, gangster, mafia movies, more of like the 70s, Godfather, Scorsese, that kind of stuff. So this movie, I can see how much influence that had yeah. on that movie. But at the same time, you see the growth and development that came since. Mm-hmm. And I honestly watched this movie. I felt like it was Baby's first Goodfellas that planted the seeds for it, but the genre had a long way to go. So I'm going to give it a three because I can't judge it through my modern lens. I have to look at it the way it was made. And I think it was innovative for the time. I think there are a lot of things that, I, as I said, have improved on. But for its time, it's a solid movie. Yeah, I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think that James Cagney, first of all, is just so great in this. And I think, again, you can't get mad at the techniques that weren't available at the time. I would have liked a little bit better cinematography. It just wasn't available. It would have been really cool with more shadows, light and dark use of that. That would have been very cool in a crime drama. I think they did the best of what they could. I wish some of the other characters were a little more, like you said, so a lot of the characters were not fleshed out. But again, that could have been because of budget and time constraints. They were very churned these films out one after another. Just on the strength of James Cagney and William Wellman, I have to give it at least three and a half stars. And I think this is sort of like an iconic movie, to be honest. Oh, it is. I mean, people always say they talk about this film. This film is still talked about a lot. So three and a half stars, three stars for you. I mean, good. (laughs) Yeah. Looking at it through a 2023 lens, a lot to be desired. 1931. It was probably, yeah, it was probably cutting edge. Absolutely. Yeah. People are probably thrilled with it. And I always thought that horror was your favorite genre, so I I <laughs> learned something new about you today. I have to respect this as the grandfather of yeah. some of my all-time favorite films. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all we have to say about The Public Enemy, but I would highly recommend that people do check it out, especially if you're a fan of Precode. This is a great Precode oh, film. Yeah. James Cagney is marvelous. So you get to see Jean Harlow in all of her beautiful dresses <sighs> and Joan Blondell as well. I mean, we hardly mentioned her, but another great actress. Oh, yeah, coming, really you know, yeah. Actually, a good friend of Cagney. She came over to film with Cagney. She was with him on the stage. He once said that Joan Blondell was the only woman he ever loved besides his wife. <laughs> 
They were great friends their whole life. But we will go for now. And please stay tuned for next time when we have another episode on Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's classic film review. I think that next time we're getting into our spooky season. It's that time of year. Ooh. See you then. All right. Stay tuned. Bye. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Time Machine. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro music composed by Heidi Engel. Outro music composed by Maximus Monk. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick and Kirk Kolkowski. Recorded at PCTV Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.